your word, have eyes to see and hearts that will understand. Father, if we're distracted at the moment, please give us peace of mind as we hear your word and then as we hear it preached so that we may be taught, trained, rebuked, encouraged by your word as we live. Amen. I'd like to invite Jean to come up to read Galatians for us. Good morning. So Galatians chapter 3, I'm starting at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one set aside or just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, has the law given given it all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given, uh, if a law had been given, that could impart life, then righteous would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. May God give us understanding of his word. Thanks, Jean. Morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Uh, We haven't met before. I'm Lachlan. I'm on the staff team here at NCA Church, uh, and I particularly look after this congregation that meets here at Camaray. Um, Like Pete said, Great to have you joining us, and particularly if you're new or visiting, we're glad to have you along. Uh, If you're back from a week or two of absence, whether it's sickness or or holidays, great to have you joining us. And if you're knocked out this week because of sickness uh, or otherwise joining us on the live stream, glad that you can be joining us online too. Um, Let's pray before we look at this passage together. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you teach us and train us, uh, encourage us and rebuke us through it. Uh, help us to listen to what you are saying in Galatians this morning, uh, that we might keep living as disciples of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, uh, there was one of the many videos that went viral and brightened the weeks of many, was of two teenage boys uh, who were given four minutes to dial a phone number on an old rotary phone. Uh, And as you might guess, they struggled. They struggled hard. Uh, It was amusing to see these guys struggle with this old piece of tech, uh, partly because it was all in good fun, um, partly because it's fun to see teenagers struggle with technology, uh, and partly as well because the struggle, at least for me, uh, it reminded me of how good it is that we've actually moved on from that technology. Um, uh, since watching the video, I um, had visited somewhere that had an old rotary phone and I thought, oh, just for kicks, you know, let's, let's just see what it's like. Let's, you know, take a trip down old memory lane and, you know, pick up the phone and start dialing the number and zero, done. Next number, two, and it just took forever. It was painful. Why? Why on earth would you ever want to go back? And as we move into this next part of Galatians, that is the big question that Paul wants his readers to consider. Why would you ever want to go back? Of course, the implications are more serious than just changing back to an old rotary phone. Again, in case you're new or visiting or have missed a few weeks, we're working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to churches in the region of Galatia, in modern-day Turkey, um, and written about 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's writing to them because they were at risk of abandoning the gospel. Um, so some people had snuck into these churches and they were presenting a different gospel. They seemed to be saying something like, you know, Paul wasn't giving you the whole picture He was just trying to win converts. You know, it's great that you want to trust Jesus, but that's not enough. 
You also need to follow Old Testament laws like you have to eat kosher food, follow Jewish dietary laws, men need to be circumcised, you need to follow some of the Jewish holidays, those sorts of things. That's what you really need to be doing to be one of God's people. And last week, we saw Paul explain in no uncertain terms they were foolish for pursuing this new alternative. They had all the evidence they needed that they were already accepted by God and yet they were abandoning God's promise to start trusting in their own works. Paul was saying, don't be so foolish as to let the cross drift from the centre of who you are. Don't look for life somewhere else. And this week builds on last week. He keeps developing this line of thought to help the Galatians think carefully about the law that they are turning to. So while following the Old Testament law might not be the temptation for us that it was for the Galatians, considering the law uh, is helpful, I think, in at least two ways. Um, firstly, as we look at it, it gives us a sense of the picture of the, uh, the role of the Old Testament law in the life of a Christian. And second, it's going to help us continue to see the riches that are ours in Christ and are found in him alone. Um, and so even if you're joining us today and you're not a Christian and you're kind of you're thinking, well, what is this Christian message about? Uh, one of the things it does start to help us see is actually Christians read the Bible with, a, it's not just a flat reading. We don't just uh, read the Old Testament the same way we read the New Testament. The coming of Jesus has made a difference. It impacts how we read the Bible. Um, and we're going to unpack it in four main parts. The law and the promise are distinct. Why the law now and then, and so why go back? There are four points we're looking at this morning. So the first thing Paul wants to make abundantly clear is that the path of the law is distinct from the path of faith. Uh, we were seeing this last week, that uh, while the Galatians had started down the path of faith, uh, the, the path of, excuse me, uh, they'd started down the path of faith, they were now shifting to the path of law. And it is a path that ended in cursing and death. They're two distinct pathways to walk. But Paul continues here in verse 15. Open up, make sure you've got your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to be working through the passage from verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Uh, the law and promise, they're two distinct options. Uh, firstly, just like in everyday life, you can't just wake up one day and decide that you're going to change the terms of a contract you're involved just because you feel like it. And God had made a contract, a, a covenant, a promise. The thing that created God's people was a promise. A promise he made with Abraham and his seed, his offspring, and that offspring was Christ. That's a point that we'll come back to in a little bit. Why does it matter that God created his people through a promise? Well, it's because the law didn't come until 430 years after the promise to Abraham. And as Paul just illustrated, you can't just change the terms of a contract because you feel like it. The law does not replace the promise to Abraham. And as he continues there, if, you, if obtaining God's inheritance comes through the law, well, it's not the basis of God's promise, but God gave a promise. The path of keeping the law to inherit God's promises 
uh, is being advocated by these agitators, these people who've come in to the Galatian churches. And it is entirely distinct from the path of faith in God's promises to receive his inheritance. They are two distinct paths, which raises the question, well, why was the law given at all in verse 19? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and trusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Why was the law given at all? Well, Paul says two things. Firstly, it was added because of transgressions. Secondly, and it was given until the time of the seed had come. Uh, now, those sort of sound okay. Okay, great. There's a reason. But when you actually stop and think, you're like, but what, is, what does that actually mean? Um, there are a few different options that have been suggested. And as I have kind of weighed them up and, and looked at the passage, I think the most likely thing that Paul means is that the primary purpose of the law is to increase transgressions so that it would be clear that the law is not the solution to sin. The primary purpose of the law is to increase transgression so that it's clear the law is not the solution to sin. So it could be that Paul is arguing that the primary purpose of the law is to restrain sin, you know, to, to help people live rightly, but clearly it's not effective at doing that. You know, just take a look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament um, and, you know, it would, uh, it, it would seem like a reasonable path to follow, a uh, reason to follow the path of the law if it restrained sin. So that would have played into the hands of the agitators. That option seems unlikely. It's possible that Paul means the law is given for dealing with sin, you know, either given a measured punishment of sin, providing instructions for the sacrificial system to help sinful people live with a holy God. That, that's possible. The law does have parts that function in that way. But I think the bit that fits best with Paul's argument in Galatians is that the law increases sin. It reveals our true nature and exacerbates the problem. Uh, the coming of the law gave something official for people to break. So the law, far from securing life, leads to judgment as it creates a context for transgression. It leads to the conscious violation of God's law. It increases transgressions. Um, and that's not to say there's not other things the law does. And if we were doing a fuller explanation of the role of the law in the life of a Christian, there's more we could say. But in Galatians, Paul is highlighting that the primary purpose of the law is to multiply transgressions. Uh, and as we'll see, it's so that it would be clear the law itself is not the answer to the problem of sin. I think that's the best fit with his argument moving forward. Um, the other thing to note here is that Paul is clear the law had temporal limits. It was only in force until the promise, uh, ref, uh, the seed who, to whom the promise referred had come. At the time of the law would conclude with the coming of this seed. So the law was to multiply transgressions and it was never intended to be in force forever. It was only until the coming of the seed. And verse 19 and 20, the rest of that little paragraph there, they start to draw out why the law could not deal with the problem of sin. So Paul references one of the early books in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, to highlight the law was given through angels and instructed to a mediator. Now, already that seems like there's more distance between God and his people in giving the law compared to God giving a promise directly to Abraham. But the particular point Paul draws attention to is that on the one hand, a mediator implies multiple parties, and on the other hand, 
God is one. See, when you consider on the one hand the law, it's given through a mediator, which shows there are multiple parties involved. And multiple parties means multiple parties have responsibilities to fulfil. The law, given at Mount Sinai, was dependent on Israel fulfilling her responsibilities. The law failed because Israel did not do what the law demanded. Israel broke the stipulations of the law covenant. Transgressions increased. The law could not deal with sin. When you consider, uh, on the other hand, the promise God gave directly to Abraham, well, that depends only on God. The law was never going to be able to deal with the problem of sin. Now, given the negative assessment that Paul's been giving the law, it could seem like he's suggesting that the law might be opposed to God's purposes. I mean, after all, he's been unambiguously clear that turning away from God and turning to the law are the same thing. It seems like that could be opposed to God's purposes. That's what he asks in verse 21. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has, everything, has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, Paul is adamant the law is not opposed to the promises of God But law and promise, they have distinct functions. The law cannot give life. What scripture does is lock everything up under the control of sin. God, who stands behind scripture, confirms that everything is under the power of sin. But this is to bring about his ultimate purpose, to fulfill the promises through faith in his son. The law is not opposed to the promise of God, rather the law functions to drive people to the promise, to drive people to God's mercy available to all through faith in Jesus. John Calvin, writing on this part of Galatians, he said, this sentence, it's full of the highest consolation. It tells us that whenever we hear ourselves condemned in Scripture, there is help provided for us in Christ if we take ourselves to him. He continues that the purpose is not that we may perish by everlasting destruction, but struck and confounded by such a dreadful sentence that we may by faith seek Christ through pass from death to life. The primary purpose of the law in the life of God's people is to turn us to Jesus. But Paul wants the Galatians to see more. He wants them to see that submitting to the law is foolish because the time of the law has passed. Not only is it not what the law was intended for, but the time of the law has passed. We're on to uh, uh, looking at uh, our, I think it's our third point now, uh, now and then, from chapter 3, verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul's developing this point that he started making in verse 22. Notice the parallels. Verse 22, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Verse 23, we were held in custody under the law, locked up. 
as under the law, under sin, there's this parallel idea developing. And so Paul takes his readers back in time, back to before Jesus came, the age of faith had dawned, to the time when the law reigned. It's worth noticing, before he was focused on the path of the law and the path of faith, but now he wants the Galatians to understand that the law isn't a path to life. The law is just something that shaped a particular period of human history. You know, we might think of the age, uh, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the age of rotary phones. Uh, Paul says that from the Bible's perspective, there are two ages to be aware of, the age of law and the age of faith. And he's taking his audience back to the age of law and focusing on the Jewish experience of the age of law. I think that's what he means when he's talking about we, we, we here. You'll notice in verse 26, he shifts to you, you, you. So the law functioned as something as a prison until the age of faith, so that the law was the Jews' guardian until Christ came, that they might be justified by faith. That might sound kind of like a prison guard, because it sort of relates to you know, being locked up, but Paul's drawing actually on a new metaphor here. Uh, the role he's referring to in the ancient world was someone who was tasked with looking after children, making sure they got where they needed, giving on-the-spot discipline. Um, for me, it reminds me of when I was in high school and we had a school sergeant. Uh, as far as I could tell, his role was on-the-spot discipline. He kept students from lingering in the halls, uh, having to address student uh, uniform infractions, pulling up students who might have been inconsiderate to members of the public. He walked around and he highlighted where people had broken the rules, particularly for the year seven to tens. Uh, but once you graduated, the relationship changed. You know, you were no longer under his authority. It actually turned out he was a pretty nice guy, I found out. Never really noticed that when I was in year seven to 10, but he was a lovely guy. Um, as far as an image goes, this is kind of what the guardian is. Someone who uh, is kind of uh, shifting this, uh, shifting people uh, along, but it, it can have both positive and negative connotations. The point Paul particularly wants to make though, is that this guardian was for a limited time. Now that the age of faith has come, verse 25, we, Jews, are no longer under a guardian. And so Paul shifts his focus from the Jewish experience of, faith, uh, of the age of law to the Galatian experience now in the age of faith. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For, if, uh, for all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul reminds the Galatians that they are living after the time of the guardian because they are part of God's family through trusting Jesus. Uh, remember back at the start of the passage that we were looking at in verse 16, uh, we saw Paul say the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And Paul taps into that idea again to help us understand how we are part of God's family. Trusting in Jesus unites us to Jesus, and being united to Jesus means well, they know they are genuinely one of God's offspring because Jesus is the one who is genuinely God's offspring. Being united to Jesus, it's a little bit like being united in marriage. I'm not related to Caitlin's mother or father or siblings or cousins, but I am part of their family because Caitlin and I were united when we were married. God's promises to Abraham and his offspring, Jesus, uh, were, that's who they were too. And what unites us to Jesus is trusting him. 
So if you trust Jesus, you can be confident. You really are one of God's children. And because we are God's children in Christ, the things that would normally discriminate between people in society have no relevance when it comes to answering the question, are you one of God's children? Are you a Jew or a Gentile? Are you a slave or free? Are you a man or a woman? Are you single or married? Are you a white-collar or a blue-collar worker? Do you live north of the bridge or south? None of these make any difference as to whether or not you are a child of God. Are you part of God's family? The thing that makes a difference is trusting Jesus because, verse 29, it's those who belong to Christ who are part of Abraham's family, part of God's family. The law never did that. Paul wants to push his point even further, so he goes back in time again, back to the Jewish experience of the age of the law there in verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So, also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. This time, the age of the law is viewed as a time of slavery. It's worth noting that slavery in the ancient world was not the same as uh, slavery that we normally think of in the 1700s. But Paul highlights what would have been an obvious point about slavery in the ancient world. When an heir is underage, functionally, he's no different from a slave. The heir has guardians and trustees set over them who direct them in a way uh, in what they can and cannot do in the same way that a slave in the ancient world had people over them who directed them in what they could and could not do. Living under the law was like living as a slave. Uh, Just note verse 3 there as well. Uh, When we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Uh, That's elemental forces. That's one of those phrases that can have kind of a broad range of meanings. Um, If you really want to walk through the different nuances of it, grab me afterwards. But Paul's using it here to develop our understanding of the, the former age, the age of law, the age of sin. The age when this world, in its fallenness, was what they were living under. And he's connecting this age of the law to the idea that it did not solve the problem of sin for the Jews. Rather, it was only when the set time had come that God sent his son uh, uh, to redeem those under the law that they received adoption to sonship. While the Jews were under the law, the Jews were slaves. They only receive the status of sons with the coming of Christ. Jesus brought a new era of liberation from, of slavery to sonship for the Jews. And so now Paul shifts back to the future to set the, before the Galatians the reality that they have in Christ. They are God's children. God has given them the spirit which confirms and authenticates that they are God's children. They, too, are no longer slaves, but God's children and heirs. You Galatians, says Paul, have the status of sons that the Jews have, and you have received it the same way that the Jews have, through faith in Jesus who redeemed us.
why tease this all out? What, what is the point of going through all of this history of the law, the age of the law? Well, it's to help answer the question, why would you want to go back? Is our last point from verse 8. Formerly, says Paul, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that I've somehow wasted my efforts on you. Having set up what things were like for the Jews in the past and considered what things are like for the Galatians now, Paul draws attention to where the Galatians had come from just to highlight that the law-keeping that they are turning to is functionally equivalent to them returning to their false gods. Before they knew Jesus, the Galatians were slaves to false gods, there in verse 8, to weak and miserable forces, which parallels the Galatian experience to what the Jews' experience under the law was back in verse 3. That word forces is linking those ideas there. Both the Jews were under the law and the Galatians in their worship of idols were enslaved. In turning back to the law, the Galatians are just turning back to slavery. It's the same problem, different paint job. And Paul's afraid his efforts have been wasted, not because it's frustrating when you feel like you've poured a whole lot of energy in and wasted your time, although I'm sure there is a little bit of that, but because he genuinely loves them. He genuinely does not want them to turn to a futile path to be returned to slavery, to follow a path of cursing and death. There's been a lot to tease out, and it's been a a little bit more down the technical end this morning of just teasing out the things that Paul is saying, but we've seen him go to great lengths to help the Galatians see that the law is only doing its job when it drives them to Jesus and to see that living under the law was effectively living as slaves, just like they had been before they turned to Christ. Why on earth would you go back? As we've gone through it on this morning, we've started to get glimpses and we've been reminded of the riches that we have in Christ, of all that the gospel has done for us. It has moved us from slavery to sonship and it, bring, it comes through faith in Jesus. It's the last morning of our bookstall this morning, but again, if you haven't had a chance to get anything and if you don't have a copy of Knowing God, that's one of the books that's available there and it is a great little read. Uh, It is quite dense, and I suspect many of us already have it on our bookshelf. Uh, And even if you uh, haven't read it for a while, if it is on your bookshelf, one thing that would be worth doing this week is reading the chapter, Sons of God, because it teases out all that is ours in being adopted into God's family. It draws out the fact that it is the highest privilege of the gospel. It is an encouraging read, and we didn't have time to unpack it this morning, but A lot of Paul's argument rests on the sonship that the Galatians have. It is worth our while reflecting on the glorious riches that are ours in Christ. And a great way to do that is to read something like Knowing God and to think a bit more carefully about being adopted into God's family. 
But as we've gone through as well, it's also shown us the value in thinking carefully about the things we are tempted to turn to instead of Jesus. And if even the law that God gave his people to show them how to live is ultimately a path to slavery, or how much more the things that the world puts before us that offer us freedom. The ritual of religion cannot give us life. It cannot deal with the problem of sin. Only Jesus can. Our achievements and our resumes cannot do anything to increase our standing before God. Neither are our feelings an accurate barometer of our standing before God. You know, just to push on that one a little further, do we expect something like happiness to be the marker of who we are as God's people? Do we chase happiness? I mean, even secular authorities will point out the futility of chasing happiness, yet, it, yet it's one of the things that, I don't know about you, but for me, keeps trying to creep its way to the centre of what's important, not just for me, but for our children. As if happiness is the thing that matters. Now, I'm not saying happiness is bad, far from it, but if it's the thing that we need to keep chasing for ourselves and our children, especially if we think, if we make the mistake of thinking that that's what life is all about, then far from being a good thing, it will enslave us as we keep pursuing it and it recedes further and further away. Far better to learn to rejoice in the Lord who has redeemed us from slavery and made us a part of his family through faith in his son and confirm that status by giving us his spirit. So let us keep the cross at the centre and keep rejoicing in all that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the cross of Christ and the glorious riches that are ours because of Jesus. Thank you that you have brought us from slavery to sonship and given us your spirit. Help us to remember the freedom that is ours in Christ and that we are part of your family. Uh, not to turn away and to be alert uh, to the, the weakness and the folly and the return to slavery uh, of things that threaten to push the cross from the centre that we might keep living as disciples of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're going to stand, uh, so please uh, join us and